This is the March of History, episode 57, The Battle of Care. We left off in our last episode with Caesar inflicting devastation on the Eberones and searching for their leader, Ambiorix. But events never stand still in the Roman world while Caesar is busy in Gaul, and these events have a massive impact on Caesar and the decisions that he makes. So let's leave Gaul behind and head to Roman Syria, where Marcus Licinius Crassus, one of the three triumvirs and Caesar's political ally, is proconsul. From the very beginning, ancient historians paint Crassus's campaign as being one destined for failure, almost like it was preordained to be doomed due to his greed and avarice. Constantly, these ancient historians reference ominous omens, and sometimes these omens are real events, like when Crassus loses many of his ships after embarking from Italy because he was too impatient to wait for calm seas. That's a real event, also seen as a bad omen by the Romans. Other omens are more of a supernatural variety, like when Pliny the Elder says that it rained iron in Lucania prophesizing that death would come from above for the Romans. Then there is the arrogant attitude of Crassus himself. When Crassus meets King Deotarus of Galatia, that's a kingdom in central Turkey, Crassus sees the old king is building a brand new city. And so Crassus says to the old king, Your majesty begins to build the twelfth hour. Meaning, Why are you bothering to start a brand new city when you're too old to see it complete? Of course, it's a pretty rude thing to say to an elderly king, but the old king doesn't miss a beat, and he replies to Crassus, quote, Neither do you, O general, undertake your Parthian expedition very early, end quote. By this time, Crassus is 60 years old, and he looks much older than that. And in the eyes of many in Rome and abroad, he's far too old to be starting a war against the Parthian Empire. And just a fun fact, Galatia, this kingdom whose king Crassus had insulted, was actually a Celtic kingdom located in central Turkey. The Celts occupied a vast area in ancient times. But despite these bad omens and the old age of Crassus, things do go pretty well for Crassus at the start of the campaign. In 54 BC, Crassus and his army bridge the Euphrates River and march into Mesopotamia, where many cities surrender to him. But when one of these cities that had surrendered then flips back to the side of the Parthians and massacres 100 of Crassus' men that had been stationed there, Crassus, in response, storms the city, which the Romans would approve of, nobody would bat an eye at that, but then allows his men to hail him as Imperator for this. Being hailed as Imperator was typically a great honor reserved for some great military victory, and it gave the general that had been hailed as Imperator the opportunity to apply to the Senate for a triumph. But the Romans end up looking down on Crassus for doing this, for allowing his troops to hail him as Imperator for such a small and insignificant victory, 
because it was so small and insignificant and was not worthy of the honor. Plus, to the Romans, it indicated that Crassus really doesn't expect any larger victory than this, and this small revenge for the massacre of his troops. So all of this is seen by the Romans as something that, at the very least, is in poor taste, at the worst, is yet another bad omen. Now by this time, the campaign season is almost over. Crassus is not moving at Caesar's lightning pace. So Crassus leaves a garrison in this area of Mesopotamia to keep an eye on it, and then he himself heads back to his province of Syria. And back in Syria, Crassus meets up with his son Publius, who will now have a chance to campaign with his father after serving under Julius Caesar in Gaul for several years with distinction. And with him, Publius brings 1,000 Gallic cavalry. And whenever I read about this part of the story, I always feel some sympathy for these Gallic warriors sent to fight a doomed war in the Middle East. And meanwhile, the fate of their own country is being fought over back home. And if these Gallic warriors make it home at all, it's safe to say that they may not recognize the Gaul they returned to. It will certainly be a lot less free than the Gaul that they left. We are told that Crassus spends his time in Syria more like a usurer than a general. Rather than spending his time training and equipping his army, he instead spends all of his time on matters of money, which, knowing what we know about Crassus already, is not too surprising. He spends his time on things like computing the tax revenues of various cities, weighing out the treasure of a temple, and at one point he raids the temple of Jerusalem and takes its treasure. Now, some, I repeat, some of this may have been the good stewardship of the finances of a province. After all, Crassus is the governor. Keeping an eye on tax revenues makes sense. Making sure the cities are paying their due makes sense. But I say some of this would have been good stewardship had he not been actively engaged in a war. In a war that he started unprovoked. Right? If he was a governor in peacetime, it would make a lot of sense to focus on the taxation policies of the provinces. But he's not. He's in the midst of a war that he has started unprovoked. And then add to all of this, there's the fact that Crassus undoubtedly has sticky fingers while counting all of this money. <laughs> He's not just counting it for the good of the, of the republic and the good of the province. Crassus also takes this time to place troop levies on various cities and kingdoms. But if these cities and these kingdoms pay Crassus a sum of money, he withdraws the levy. This makes the levies look more like extortion than a draft for war. And to top off all of this inauspicious activity, at one point Crassus and his son Publius are leaving a temple, and young Publius falls, and then Crassus Sr. trips over young Publius. And as you would imagine, this is seen by the Romans as yet another bad omen. It won't be the last. Once the campaign season of 53 BC comes around, Crassus again marches his army towards Mesopotamia. 
In total, he has with him seven legions, or about 35,000 men, along with around 4,000 cavalry and 4,000 light infantry and at least 500 archers. Now, you'll notice the bulk of his men are heavy infantry, which is normal for the Roman army, but take note of that. And at this point, the king of Parthia sends Crassus some ambassadors. And these ambassadors basically say, and there's two different accounts, one from Plutarch, one from Cassius Dio, but basically they say that the king of Parthia has heard that this invasion may not be the will of Rome, that instead it may be the will of greedy Crassus. They don't say it in those words, but that's kind of the gist of what they say. And so Cassius Dio says they ask Crassus for the cause of the war. What's the cause for all of this? And to this question, Crassus boasts that he will give them their answer in Seleucia. Seleucia was a major city of the Parthian Empire located on the Tigris River in Mesopotamia. And in reply to this, one of the ambassadors of the Parthians laughs, points to his palm, and says, Hair will grow here before you reach Seleucia. The ambassadors then leave and tell their king that it will be war with Rome. So Crassus' army marches on, and eventually they are met by Artavastes, the king of Armenia. And with him, Artavastes, the king of Armenia, brings 6,000 cavalry of his own personal bodyguard. And in meeting with Crassus, he also promises another 10,000 heavy cavalry and 30,000 infantry all of which will be supplied at his own cost. Artavastes also advises Crassus to invade Parthia by way of his kingdom, Armenia, which would be a roundabout way, but Artavastes gives some compelling reasons for this. He says that if Crassus marches through Armenia, he will supply the Roman army as they pass through Armenia, and that the route through Armenia is protected by mountains which will protect the Roman army from the Parthian cavalry, which is really their main asset. So for a variety of reasons, this makes a lot of sense. And to all of this good sense and generous offers, Crassus gives Artavastes cold thanks, as Plutarch puts it, for his readiness to serve Crassus. Crassus then goes on to say that he will instead invade the Parthian Empire via Mesopotamia, where he left his troops last year. This makes sense in some ways. He doesn't want to abandon these troops, but still, he is snubbing his, turning his nose up at this ally and snubbing him who offered him generous help. So to all of this, Artavastes, king of Armenia, basically shrugs, says, have it your way, and leaves and heads back to Armenia. Crassus continues on his way and again bridges the Euphrates River, but this time there are all sorts of bad omens as his army's crossing, or at least the ancient historians record bad omens. To list a few of these bad omens, before crossing the Euphrates, the Roman soldiers go to take up the legionary eagle of their legion, but it refuses to come unstuck from the ground. It refuses to budge from its place it was planted in the ground. Apparently, the Roman omens would have you believe, unwilling to venture beyond the Euphrates with the Roman army. Not a good sign. It's not until a group of soldiers joins their strength together to forcibly lift this eagle out of the ground 
that they are able to force it from its spot and force it over the river to accompany them. Next, a storm sweeps in with unnaturally loud thunder. Parts of the bridge across the Euphrates are carried away by the storm. Two lightning bolts strike the spot where the Romans are planning to make their camp, another bad omen. And one of Crassus's horses, all decked out in its finery, charges into the Euphrates River, dragging the groom taking care of it with him, and then drowns both groom and horse. Finally, when the Romans go to take up the eagle of the lead legion, Plutarch says its head turns backwards. Again, it's as if it doesn't want to accompany the Roman legions, it's looking back towards the confines of the Roman Empire. Now, what should we believe about these sorts of omens? Did an eagle, a metal eagle, really turn its head backwards? Almost certainly not. <laughs> but these accounts do tell us how the Romans felt that this whole campaign was ominous, or at least in hindsight did. And as I said before, some of these omens could have been real events that really did spook the troops. For example, once across the Euphrates River, Crassus then feeds his army lentils and salt. That sounds like a perfectly fine meal. Why would that upset the Romans? Well, apparently this was the traditional food that Romans served at funerals. So that doesn't go down too well with the very superstitious legionaries. Crassus then, perhaps noticing the dejected looks on, on the faces of his troops, tries to give them a rousing speech. But in this speech, he says, quote, I'm going to break down the bridge that none of you may return, end quote. And in Plutarch's telling of the story, Crassus means to inspire his army, like with the old story of Hernan Cortez scuttling his ships so his troops would have to conquer or be killed. But instead of being inspired, Crassus's soldiers look alarmed. And Crassus sees this. And Plutarch says Crassus could have corrected his words and explained himself better to the troops, but refuses to out of sheer stubbornness. Cassius Dio tells this whole story a little bit differently, with Crassus still saying none of them will return over that bridge over the Euphrates. But Crassus, in saying this, means that he will instead take them on a safer route home through Armenia, which the army misunderstands to mean they won't come home at all. After this river crossing, bad omens and all, the Roman army then marches along the Euphrates River, and their plan is to follow the Euphrates down to the Greek city of Seleucia, which again is part of the Parthian Empire. And Seleucia is actually on the Tigris River, but I guess their plan was to follow the Euphrates down until they got parallel with Seleucia and then cross the gap between the two rivers. And their hope in doing this is that Seleucia is really a Greek city. It has a sizable Greek population. And their hope is that the Greek population of Seleucia will come over to the Roman side and then will be a powerful ally against the Parthians in the region and a city with which they can base their operations, and supply their army. But as they march along the Euphrates River, scouts return to tell Crassus that a great many horse hoof prints in the ground have been found ahead. But despite these hoof prints, 
The Romans see no one. So the Romans take this to mean the Parthians are fleeing the Roman advance, and so they rejoice. Now, in the beginning of the Roman campaign, the Romans were overconfident given that past Roman generals like Pompey and Lucullus had defeated armies in Asia, which is the Romans called the Middle East Asia, in the past, and those armies had far outnumbered the Roman forces. So they assumed that why should it be any different for them? They should also be able to easily defeat any Asian force that even if it far outnumbers their own. Now at some point, this whole view changed and the Romans had become very anxious due to rumors they had heard that the Parthians were very strong and well-equipped and a great fighting force. But now the Romans seesaw again to overconfidence, seeing the hoofprints in the ground and concluding that the Parthians are running from the Romans. All of this kind of seesawing of confidence is typically the sign of an inexperienced army. And at this point, as the Romans are feeling overconfident again, an Arab chief named Ariamnes comes to the Roman camp. Uh, Cassius Dio calls him Abgarus of Osroin. So we're just going to call him Ariamnes. It's an easier name. And Ariamnes was actually known by some of the Roman soldiers. These soldiers had served under Pompey in the East in the past, and Ariamnes had been friendly with Pompey in those days, and so had been seen as a friend to the Romans, and so these soldiers recognize him. But what these soldiers don't know is that Ariamnes is now in the service of the Parthians. Well, Ariamnes, the Arab chief, goes to Crassus, and with a silver tongue, asks him, why he delays, rather than attacking the Parthians who, at that very moment, are fleeing the Roman advance. And he convinces Crassus this will be an easy victory, and that the commander of the Parthian forces is nearby with a small group of men. This is all a trick, though. In reality, the Parthians have divided their force into two different armies, one, the main force led by their king has attacked the Armenians who are allied to Rome, and another is ready and waiting for Crassus. This second army is led by a man named Serena, and Serena is young, wise, brave, capable, and beautiful. <laughs> Plutarch says in beauty and bodily stature, there was no man like Serena. Serena was such a dandy, Plutarch says when he traveled on personal business, he brought with him 1,000 camels to carry his baggage, 200 chariots for his concubines, not to mention a 1,000-man heavily armored cavalry force and many more light-armed cavalry. In fact, Plutarch says Serena was the second man in the kingdom in terms of wealth family, and reputation, but in courage and prowess, he was the first. He was even the first man to scale the walls of Seleucia when it was conquered. Serena was all of these things, and Serena was not yet 30. Well, Crassus doesn't know any of this, so he's convinced by the Arab chieftain Ariamnes to follow him as a guide. And Ariamnes leads the Romans away from the Euphrates River and into a vast plain. 
And at first, this way is easy for the Roman army. But then it becomes difficult as the plain slowly turns into a desert. And at this point, many of the Romans begin to suspect treachery in the part of Ariamnes. And one of these suspicious Romans is Gaius Cassius Longinus. And yes, that is the famous Cassius from Shakespeare. He will be one of the leaders of the plot to assassinate Julius Caesar. But that is in the future. Right now, Cassius is young, intelligent, brave, and he's been giving Crassus good counsel, which Crassus has ignored at every turn. And as the Romans are marching into the desert, Crassus gets word from the Armenian king, Artavastes. And Artavastes says that Armenia has been invaded by the Parthian king, Orodes II. And therefore, he can't send Crassus any aid. And he advises Crassus to turn back and join him in battle against Orodes II, against the Parthian king. Or at the very least, he advises Crassus to keep to the mountains, where the Parthian cavalry won't be effective. Crassus refuses to even write a reply back. Instead, he tells the messenger from his ally that he doesn't have time for the Armenians now, but will avenge himself against Artavastes, the Armenian king, at a later time for his treachery. You can just imagine the look of confusion and dismay on the faces of the ambassadors from Armenia. Here they have warned their ally of an attack on his ally. They have given him sage advice. And what does he do? He accuses them of treachery and says that he will fight them at a later date. Not exactly a very good ally. And so instead of keeping to the mountains, Crassus continues his march into the flat desert. And Cassius and his friends aren't happy about this. They suspect they're being led into a trap, and they complain to Crassus about this. But this only irritates Crassus, so eventually they stop complaining. Next, Cassius confronts Ariamnes, their guide, directly. Cassius asks him what he has done to bewitch Crassus that he would lead the Romans through such a desert. But Ariamnes is cool under pressure, and he deflects these accusations with jokes. He goes around the Roman camp cheering the soldiers, telling the soldiers, what, do they think this would be like Campania, filled with fresh springs and baths and inns? No, this is Arabia and Assyria. Deserts sort of go with the territory. And through these methods, Plutarch says Ariamnes manages the Romans like children. But then, one day, Ariamnes leaves the Roman camp. But he doesn't sneak away secretly at nighttime. He openly tells Crassus he is leaving for the Parthian army to find a way to disorder their affairs, essentially to be a spy for Crassus. And astoundingly, Crassus, who has been led into a desert by this man, buys this and lets him go. So after Ariamnes leaves, the Roman army continues to march into the desert. 
And on one of these days marching the desert, Crassus orders his heavy infantry to keep pace with his cavalry. This is never a great idea if you expect the battle soon. Ideally, you want your infantry fresh, not having half-jogged to keep up with the cavalry in the midst of a desert. And that same day, the Roman cavalry scouts return and say that they've actually spotted the Parthians and that several of their companions have been killed and that they themselves barely managed to escape. But perhaps most importantly, they bring back a report saying that the Parthian army is not disordered and fleeing. It's in battle formation, ready to do battle with the Romans. The Roman army goes into an uproar. Crassus is in shock. Plutarch says he could barely get his army in order. He was rushing so much. This is a little bit like if you can imagine an older movie where somebody needs to unlock their car door by sticking the key into the door and somebody's chasing them, maybe a bad guy, and they're rushing too much and inevitably in their rushing they drop their keys, they pick the keys up, they can't get the key into the keyhole because their hand is shaking so much. This is what's happening to Crassus, except he's trying to organize an entire army. And it just goes to show that there is a fine line between Caesar's quick, decisive orders and a general that is frantic and panicky like Crassus is here. Now, at Cassius's advice, Crassus opens up the ranks of his army so they'll take up as much space as possible. And this is to make it more difficult for the Parthians to surround the Romans. And also at Cassius' advice, Crassus puts the cavalry on his wings. But unlike Caesar, who we've so often seen be very decisive in war, Crassus is not a decisive commander, or at least not in this battle he isn't. So he soon changes his mind and reorganizes the entire army into a square with troops facing the outside of each side of the square. He also divides his cavalry into groups to support each group of infantry. He then gives command of one wing to his son Publius and the other to Cassius. Crassus commands the center. The Roman army then marches on until they come to a small river. And the Roman soldiers at this point are dehydrated and suffering from heat. Remember, they have been made to keep up with the cavalry on their march. So most of Crassus' commanders advise him to stay by the river until the next day. And staying put like this will give the army time to rest and rehydrate. And it will also give the army time to collect information on the Parthian army. Crassus won't have this. He's fired up by the enthusiasm of his son and the cavalry who want to keep marching. So Crassus orders anyone who wants to eat or drink to do so while standing in formation. But before the Roman soldiers have even finished eating or drinking, Crassus orders them to start marching again. And not slowly, with many stops, as you would typically march on the way to a battle so that your soldiers stay fresh. Instead, Crassus pushes them hard, like he's in a rush. And after marching some distance, the Romans spot the Parthian army. Serena, their general, has hidden his main force behind the front ranks, 
and he's ordered them to hide their glittering armor under cloaks. So to the Romans, the Parthian army doesn't seem as big or as well-armed as they had expected, and they begin to take heart at this. But then, the Parthian war drums begin. According to Plutarch, quote, But when they, meaning the Romans, approached, and the general, meaning Serena, gave the signal, immediately all the field rung with a hideous noise and terrible clamor. But the Parthians do not engage themselves to war with cornets and trumpets, but with a kind of kettle drum, which they strike all at once in various quarters. With these they make a dead, hollow noise, like the bellowing of beasts mixed with sounds resembling thunder. End quote. And once the drums had sent a shiver down the ranks of the Roman lines, the Parthians throw off their cloaks, revealing beautifully polished armor. And towering over all the Parthians is their general Serena. Plutarch says his great courage and prowess was hidden by the effeminate way he looked. You see, he had his face painted with makeup and dressed very effeminately. Though, of course, what looks effeminate to the Romans and Greeks might not necessarily look so to the Parthians. Now, the Parthian army relied mostly on cavalry in battle, kind of the opposite of the Romans in a way, who relied mostly on infantry. The Parthian cavalry mainly consisted of two types of units. First was the heavy cavalry, known as cataphracts. The second were light horse archers. The heavy cataphracts fought with long, heavy lances and also bows, and they rode large Nicaean horses, horses said to sweat blood and which were highly valued as far away as China. And for the cataphracts, both the rider and the horse were covered in armor. They're really like ancient armored tanks. Now, the horse archers rode smaller horses and were extremely skilled at archery. They used compound bows, which were very powerful. And in total, Serena has roughly 10,000 cavalry with him, consisting of 1,000 heavy cataphracts, and 9,000 horse archers, according to Plutarch. So, if these numbers are true, the Parthians are heavily outnumbered by the Romans. And Serena is well aware of this, and knows how formidable the legions are in close combat. So Serena's come up with a plan to avoid engaging with the Roman legionaries in close combat. The Parthians first attack with their heavy cataphracts. These cataphracts tried charging the Romans and pushing them back with their lances, but the Romans hold their ground. Their ranks are too deep. So the cataphracts retreat and pretend to retreat in disorder. But this feigned disorder is only a ploy, and soon the Parthians that seem to be retreating in every direction suddenly have the Roman square 
surrounded. Crassus then orders his light infantry to charge the Parthians. The Parthians greet these light infantry with a shower of arrows. And this makes the Roman light infantry run back for cover among the heavy infantry with many arrow wounds. And this, seeing the light infantry run back screaming with wounds through the heavy infantry, causes some terror within the army, within the Roman army, when they see that the Parthian arrows are piercing shields and armor alike. Like I said, these compound bows are powerful. And the Parthians take note that, yeah, hey, our arrows are having great effect. So their next move is to start raining down arrows upon the Roman square from all sides. Plutarch says they didn't even need to aim their shots, the Romans were so closely packed together. And when the arrows hit, they do so with extreme violence. Now, at this point, the Romans begin to realize how truly desperate their situation is. If they stay in one place, they are target practice for the Parthians. But if they charge the Parthians, the Parthians simply ride away. All the while, as they're riding away, turning back in their saddle and shooting arrows from their horses as they run. Now, this shot takes great skill to do, and the Romans come to know this tactic as the Parthian shot. And in English, this would be corrupted as parting shot. And that is where we get the term parting shot from today, to describe when someone makes a barbed or insulting comment just before leaving. Because just like the Parthians on horseback who turn over their shoulder and shoot at their enemy as they run away, somebody who gives a parting shot is leaving some kind of barbed insult just as they leave the scene. So, seeing really no great option, Crassus and the Romans decide that their best option is to stay put. They know that the Parthians will run out of arrows eventually. Then they'll have to actually fight the Romans. And the legions are at their deadliest in the open field in a pitched battle in close quarters with the enemy. That's the idea, anyway. But then word comes to the Romans that the Parthians have brought camel loads of extra arrows into battle. And when a group of horse archers runs out of arrows, they simply go to the camels and refill their stock of arrows, and then head back to the Roman lines and keep up the barrage on the Romans. Once Crassus discovers this, he feels desperate. So he orders his son Publius to take 1,300 cavalry, 500 archers, and 8 cohorts of legionaries and to charge the Parthians with this force. Publius, his son, dutifully complies with this. And the Parthian response to this charge, unsurprisingly, is to run away. Publius is encouraged by this and thinks that the Parthians are too afraid to face him in battle, so he chases after them. Publius continues to chase them until he's a good distance away from the main Roman army. Then, Publius sees the Parthians ahead, not in disarray, but arrayed for battle. And not just the Parthians he had been chasing, but fresh reinforcements have joined them. The Parthians now outnumber Publius. And only now do Publius and the Romans realize that they have been led 
into yet another trap. But even at this point, Publius expects the Parthians to charge the Romans and actually fight in hand-to-hand combat. The Romans are great at that. They're okay with that. But the Parthians don't do this. Instead, the Parthians ride around the dusty plain in front of the Romans, and this kicks up so much dust in the air that soon the Romans can't see or even speak to each other. So the Romans, unable to see and afraid of what's happening around them, huddle inward for protection, bringing their ranks closer to each other. Then, the arrows begin to rain down. Plutarch says these Romans died miserable deaths. They're hit with arrows left, right, and center. And when they try to pull the arrows out by force, the arrowheads pull out nerves and veins, causing horrific pain and slow deaths. Many Romans simply snap the arrows off and leave the arrowhead in their bodies. And the result of all this is not only that many Roman soldiers die, but that the survivors are unfit for combat. At one point, Publius tries to rally his men to charge the Parthians, but in reply, his men simply show him their hands nailed to their shields or their feet nailed to the ground by arrows. Many of his troops lack the ability to run away, never mind to fight. So Publius decides to charge the Parthians with just his Gallic cavalry. But the light Gallic cavalry is a mismatch against the heavy armored cataphracts. Their light, small javelins simply stick into the cataphract's scale armor and do no real damage. Meanwhile, the cataphract's heavy lances easily pierce the light armor of the Gauls. But despite this mismatch, Plutarch says the Gallic cavalry wrought wonders. These Gauls must have been supreme athletes, because many of them start grabbing the cataphract spears when they miss a thrust, and then using the spear, yank the soldier off his armored horse. Think about that. That takes a lot of strength, agility, and eye-hand coordination to do that, not to mention nerve to sit there and, and dodge a spear as it comes at you. And once the cataphracts fall off their horses, their armor is too heavy for them to easily get back up, so they're essentially useless in the fight. And the Gauls come up with other clever tactics to even the odds against the cataphracts. Many of the Gauls hop off their horses altogether and sneak up under the horses of the Parthians and stab the horses in the stomach. As you would imagine, these poor horses go wild at this, buck their riders, trample their own people, and cause chaos in the Parthian lines. Now, some of these tactics help the Romans, but despite the clever tactics, overall the Gauls don't fare well. Most of their horses are charged against the Parthian spears and die, and not being used to the dry desert climate, the Gauls are tormented by the heat and thirst even more so than the Romans are. Now, it's unclear exactly when, but at some point in the fighting, Publius Crassus is seriously wounded, and the Gauls have to carry him back to the Roman lines, not on horseback, but on foot, since they've lost all their horses. Now, remember, the line that we're talking about, the Roman line, is not the main line with Crassus Sr., it's the line that Publius 
led out against the Parthians. The main Roman army is still a good distance away from them. And this Roman force, with the wounded Publius in tow, retreat to a small sandy hill where they hope to make a stand. There, they make a shield wall, hoping to stop the Parthian arrows. But this position on a hill backfires on them. Rather than offering protection, it exposes the Romans to yet even more arrows. You see, on flat ground, men in the center of the shield wall are protected on all sides by their comrades' bodies and shields. They only really have to worry about arrows that are lobbed up from above. But on a hill like this, the middle rows no longer have protection from the ranks in front of them and on their sides. So an archer can easily stand, or in the Parthians' case, ride on flat ground and shoot at soldiers in the middle of the army because they are elevated. And if you're having trouble picturing this, imagine a movie theater. If the seats are all one level, you can only really see the front row of people if you're sitting eye level with them. But if the theater has stadium seating, suddenly you can see all the rows of people. It's the same concept here. Now, Publius Crassus, who, remember, is wounded, has some Greek friends with him that day. And these friends actually live in the area where the battle is taking place, near Kare in what is today southwestern Turkey. And these friends urge Publius to flee with them to one of their home cities, which are friendly to the Romans. But to his great credit, young Publius Crassus says, quote, No, there is no death so terrible for the fear of which Publius would leave his friends that die upon his account. End quote. Instead, Publius sends his friends away to safety without him. He then opens up his armor, and because he has an arrow in one of his arms and can no longer use that arm, he orders his armor-bearer to stab and kill him, effectively committing suicide. And many other men of distinction in the army see this and follow suit and also kill themselves. The Parthian cataphracts eventually charge the rest of the remaining Roman troops and kill many with their lances, and some 500 Romans are taken prisoner from that hill. And once no Romans were left to resist, the Parthians find the body of young Publius Crassus and chop his head off. Now, this part of the story always stands out to me. It's very easy when listening to Caesar's accounts of the Gallic Wars to get lulled into a false sense of security, a feeling like it's all one big adventure for Caesar and the Romans, and that any mission Caesar or his legates go on will turn out fairly well for them, or at least not turn into an unmitigated disaster like Care. But never forget that none of these successes were guaranteed or destined to happen. On any given day that Caesar sets out against the Gauls, that day could end with the Roman army in shambles and Caesar committing suicide. That's a real and constant threat hanging over Caesar and the entire Roman army's heads in Gaul. And I often wonder if that's something they are aware of and mentally prepare for, 
knowing that they may have to kill themselves at any moment if things go bad, or if they tell themselves that, hey, bad things happen to other people, but not to me. I'm the main character of the story. I'm Julius Caesar. That'll never happen to me. And if Publius did tell himself something like this, that bad things happen to others, but not to me, I'm the main character, man, it must have been one hell of a shock for Publius to start off his day thinking he's going to kick some Parthian butt with Dad, and for that same day to end amid the screams of his dying men, ordering his armor-bearer to kill him. What a world to live in, knowing that's how your day could end on any given day in ancient warfare. And it's truly Caesar's ability as a general that often keeps this from happening. Even decisions Caesar makes in Gaul that seem simple and routine have great effect. Think about it, if Ariamnes, the Arab chieftain, approached Caesar and tried to lead him into a desert ambush, Caesar may very well have just told the guy to go kick rocks and kept on marching his army along the Euphrates, as was intelligent to do. And if it was mentioned at all in the Gallic commentaries, and in this podcast, it would have been mentioned as a very minor point. Something insignificant, brushed over. But such minor decisions can lead to a positive or negative outcome in war. And Caesar's decision-making in warfare is supreme. But getting back to the Battle of Carrae, the Parthians then take young Crassus's head stick it on a spear, and immediately ride off to find his father, Crassus Sr. Back with the main Roman army, Marcus Licinius Crassus is finally catching a breather. It seems that most of the Parthian army has been diverted to fight his son Publius, and so with this break in the action, Crassus begins to regain confidence. It kind of always works that way. If you have a break in the stress, a break in the pressure, it gives you a chance to recollect your wits and regain your confidence. But then, word comes that Publius is in desperate straits unless he receives help. And because of this, Crassus is put in an agonizing position for any general. What should he put first? The welfare of the army or that of his own son? It's a terrible decision to have to make. And so Crassus, as you would imagine, is racked with indecision. And finally, Crassus decides to go to his son's rescue. But just as he comes to this decision, back comes the Parthian army, drums pounding. And with them, the Parthians bring young Publius' head on a spear. They ride close enough to the Roman lines that his face can be recognized by the Romans and recognized by his father. And they call out to the Romans, asking, Where are Publius's parents? What family is he from? For it seems impossible that such a brave warrior as Publius should be the son of a coward like Crassus. That is a horrific way to find out your son is dead. And dead because of your orders. Crassus, in the midst of this dismal crisis, 
has perhaps his finest moment of courage for the sake of his army in the entire Battle of Carre. Crassus rides through the ranks of the Roman army, telling his troops, quote, This, O oh my countrymen, is my own peculiar loss, but the fortune and the glory of Rome is safe and untainted so long as you are safe. But if anyone be concerned for my loss of the best of sons, let him show it in revenging him upon the enemy. Take away their joy, revenge their cruelty, nor be dismayed at what is past, for whoever tries for great objects must suffer something. End quote. Now, this may seem very crass, very uncaring for the death of his son, but trust me, Crassus is feeling the death of his son. He is showing a brave face for his soldiers and trying to remain in command of his emotion to try to get his soldiers out of this bad situation. Unfortunately for Crassus, all of this courage just may have come too late. Despite his brave words, Crassus' men pay very little attention to him, and when he orders them to shout for battle, they only make a faint and unsteady noise. Meanwhile, the shout of the Parthians is loud and bold. They are ready for battle. The Parthian cataphracts then begin to herd the Romans closer at the point of a spear. All the while, the horse archers of the Parthians rain arrows down upon the Roman ranks as they get closer and closer together, becoming easier and easier targets. According to ancient historian Cassius Dio, quote, Indeed, they could not even get a sure footing by reason of the number of corpses but kept falling over them. The heat and thirst, it was midsummer, and this action took place at noon, and the dust, of which the barbarians raised as much as possible by all riding around them, told fearfully upon the survivors, and many succumbed from these causes, even though unwounded. End quote. In that quote, Dio is saying, not only are the Romans tripping over the dead bodies all around them and unable to get a sure footing, but that aside from arrows and lances, Roman soldiers are dying from heat stroke and dehydration in the desert. Even the Romans that decide that bravery is their best course of action and rush out of the encirclement to fight the Parthians don't fare any better. The heavy cataphract spears are deadly and many times are even able to spear two Romans with one thrust. So the situation gets increasingly desperate for the Romans until finally, you could say they are saved by the bell with the coming of night. And as the battlefield darkens, both armies separate. Parthians return to their camp to celebrate their great victory. Meanwhile, the Romans nurse their wounds and try to figure out a plan to get out of this hell they find themselves in. But that is where we'll end our episode today. In our next episode, Crassus and his army begin a long, bloody retreat from the Battle of Care, which has an ending so theatrical it could only exist in ancient history. But before we go, let me give a very special thank you to Douglas. I won't say Douglas's last name out of respect for his privacy. 
But Douglas recently made an extremely generous contribution to the March of History's PayPal. So thank you so much, Doug. It's folks like you that make the March of History possible. So again, from the bottom of my heart, I say thank you. Now, if you want to contribute to the March of History like Douglas, you can go to our PayPal. We have a link in the show notes of every single show where the summary is. And a dollar a show is all we ask. If you want to contribute more, you always can. But if everybody contributed just a dollar a show, it would go a very long way to keeping this show funded and making it a reality for the long term. And as always, thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon. You guys are steady donators, steady patrons of the March of History, and the show would not be possible without you. It's all of your support that helps this show continue, and not just monetarily, but just knowing from my perspective that people like the show and feel strongly enough about it to support it with their own hard-earned money gives me motivation and makes me want to produce more content and better content for you. So thank you all for listening, and remember, if you can't afford to contribute monetarily to the March of History, you can always leave a five-star review with something you like about the podcast on the Apple Podcast Store if you listen on an Apple device. I have recently found out that the more reviews the audience leaves, the more discoverable the podcast is in the search engines, that when people search for history podcasts, they find the March of History. So the more of those we can get, the better. So that's always a way you can contribute if you can't afford to financially. Thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you in our next episode of the March of History.